Don't ask what gives you purpose. Ask what gives you energy. Listen to this clip from this fantastic recording I had with Shane Ward, agroecologist and founder of Action Ecology. Um, my wife introduced me to this idea. She's an organisational psychologist by, um, by training and had been working in leadership development and all these other things, right? And so she came home one day and was talking about an exercise that she was involved with where people were asked to try and find one word that described what energised them. And for some reason, this captured my thinking in a way that nothing quite like it ever had. I'd spent a long time, in fact, I'd spent the whole of my adult life up to this point thinking about what I was passionate about which was films and telling stories and working with actors and, you know, crafting all these things. I was passionate about that. I was passionate about, you know, other things. I was, I loved music. I, you know, I thought about what I loved. I thought about what I was passionate about. I thought about all these other things, but I never actually asked the question, what energizes me? What gives me energy instead of taking it away? My name is Catherine Ann Byam and I'm your host. What's your purpose and how does it integrate with sustaining life itself? For some of us, this question is a deep ache that we spend a lifetime trying to find, perhaps shifting direction as we learn and grow from one path to another. For many of us, our children give us a clear definition. Providing for them becomes our reason for being. For others, it's about enjoying the present moment, ever so fleeting and ever so beautiful. For still others, it can be financial, status, contribution or impact. In this podcast, my guest and I will share with you tips, ideas, and methods on how to build a career that integrates with who you are and the life you want to lead. We will explore the social foundation on which to build your transition and an ecological ceiling above which we need not climb so that we live not just for ourselves, but for our collective ability to thrive. Welcome to the Purpose Driven Career Podcast, Do What Matters. I invited Shane to come share with us a bit about his career pivot and journey. I found his story really interesting. So I interviewed him way back in March for my podcast, Where Ideas Launch. And during that interview, it came up that he used to do something completely different than ecology before he actually got started in the space. So I wanted to ask you, Shane, as my first question, tell us a little bit about that unorthodox route you took to being in the space and what happened to you in sort of 2008, 2009 to create that pivot? Sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Catherine. It's funny, I actually don't really talk about this subject very often. I suppose it is it is pretty unorthodox in some ways, but yeah, for some reason, I just, I don't often sort of share, volunteer, you know, all the things I've done before. Um, but so this is, you know, not something that I have had many occasion to discuss. I suppose the the thing about a life is that it, it doesn't tend to sort of neatly follow chapter markers, you know. So when telling this story, I will be sort of simplifying things as much as possible. But I started, I suppose, my my first career uh, straight out, you know, out of out of high school as a young adult. The focus was film and television. So I really wanted to be a, a film director. And I, however, did not have any idea about how to do that. At the time, it was not popular then to, to do that as a career as, as it later became and so it was not obvious to me at all how I went about doing that and so um, you know I, I did the usual thing sort of I tried going to university um, that didn't really kind of pan out did a couple of years of trying to do that an arts degree and uh, philosophy and art history and things like that cinema studies but then ended up going working jobs uh, you know low-paid jobs and but then eventually uh, 
found my way to a film school and this was in Melbourne, Australia at this point. And I, through a roundabout way, ended up getting some experience working on film sets uh, on the crew in the camera department. I got my first taste of it as sort of like as an intern and then launched my own sort of, you know, as, as an independent contractor, essentially, a freelancer, uh, working on film crews for a few years. The, the, the dream the whole time being to, to become a, you know, successful film director. So that was the sort of initial trajectory that my career took off in. And I was very passionate about it. I was very driven, very determined. Uh, the moment that I decided that that's what I was going to do, everything else kind of went to the periphery. And so I, I remember, you know, over that period thinking to myself, you know, well, it, it was it was noticeable anyway that compared to a lot of my other you know, friends and, and people that I knew of my age group, um, they, a lot of them didn't have a very clear idea of what they wanted to do. And I was laser like focus on, on that, that one thing. After a few years of, of working on, on crews, I had a sort of the probably the first, I would say, crisis in my in my adult life where I kind of I broke up with, uh, you know, I had a relationship with Jen, I broke up with my girlfriend at the time. Uh, my grandfather, who was very close to me, passed away. I had injured my back, so I couldn't work. And it sort of felt like everything kind of exploded all at once. And I was sort of there wondering what, what I was going to do and thought, well, I've got to rebuild my life. So I decided, well, if I'm rebuilding it from nothing, I may as well rebuild what I want, you know. So I thought, well, what do I want? And uh, being half French and having gone to school in France um, when I was younger for a couple of years and um, you know, my family being, being French, and so that was a very important part of, of who I was culturally. I thought to myself, well, you know, I, I feel kind of trapped and, and um, I guess a bit stuck, really, where I was. And so I thought, well, I want to go to Europe. I want to, you know, go and uh, meet this extended family and see the country that I feel a connection with and, and just seek my fame and fortune, as it were. So that's what I did. I, you know, I went and did a sort of a, a random sales job uh, for a few months just to save enough, uh, up enough money, uh, sold my prize guitar. Uh, bought myself a plane ticket and then left Australia vowing, not vowing to never return, but but with no intention of returning. Uh, and so that's what I did. And then I sort of, my my trajectory over the next sort of year was, was sort of this incredible experience of just finding myself, you know, partying on yachts in Cannes and, you know, going to Hollywood parties and pitching to film execs. You know, just it all felt like it was all sort of happening. Um, and then that trajectory ended itself with a little bit of a crash and there's a whole other story there but um but that sort of is what set my life in that direction in which case I then eventually found myself in London and um but that was not you know it's not easy it's there's not an easy place to live it's not an easy career to tackle uh it's extremely difficult to succeed in and um but I was you know determined to to do so and so when I found myself there without much work you know, I'd, I'd had some work and then it dried up and I just couldn't find any anymore. That led me uh, sort of to inadvertently fall into the corporate world, which I'd, I'd had zero experience in. I'd never worked in the corporate world before in my life. But what I found was that, you know, the skills that I'd developed through being an independent filmmaker, you know, the sort of the, I guess, the the entrepreneurship of, of having to try and get projects up from nothing, the rigour and discipline that's required, particularly operating you know, on, a, on a professional film set. Close enough is not good enough. You need to be able to perform at, you know, at a high level. I developed all kinds of creative skills in terms of you know, how to build a 
websites and how to write, obviously, because I was also wrote scripts. And anyway, so I had this range of skills, also just this, I guess, this attitude of just can do, I can problem solve, you know, no matter what the problem is, I can solve it, which is what you have to do when you're, you know, working, trying to make a film on no money, you know. Um, that sort of put me in good stead. And essentially, I came in working uh, in a, on a program team in, uh, at a bank. Uh, and uh, before long, I was a communications manager because they realised they liked me. They realised I had the skills. You know, they wanted to take advantage of that. And so then I was a communications manager. And then after I was a communications manager once, it was easy to become one a second time, and then a third, and so forth. And so I sort of fell into this sort of pattern uh, for the next several years of being, you know, pretty successful as a um, sort of communications uh, consultant. You know, contracting to different companies around bringing my this is pre-social media so at that time you know I was one of the few people I suppose that had a a real grasp on the sort of digital media space of course coming from film and, and knowing how to, to communicate using those tools well so I kind of carved out a bit of a niche for myself doing that and um and then you know when I wasn't doing that I was then sort of putting my effort into trying to get film projects going so I was kind of running this sort of parallel life in a way feeling like a bit of an imposter sometimes I guess in the, the corporate world as it, yeah, it was not something that I ever really felt that was for me. But um, it was this trajectory that eventually led me to this point in, in around 2008 where I was starting to wonder what I was doing. But I, I guess uh, at that point I was, what was I, I must have been in my early 30s, something like that. And um, I, I guess I just, I, it wasn't, I wasn't feeling it. I, I, I I was I was having a hard time getting projects made in in London in the in the film industry. Uh, I was getting stuff done, but it just felt like I was getting knocked down all the time. I was working in um, in the corporate world, but after the sort of after sort of I guess reaching something of a plateau uh, of you know being successful, and and I could see I could just keep doing this for the rest of my life, like, and I could be successful at it. I was earning decent money, and but it was not satisfying to me. In fact, I was deeply not satisfied. But it wasn't, I think, necessarily because of the work. I think what, what that period revealed to me was something underlying that was going on. But the way that it played out was um, I, I broke up from, you know, with my girlfriend at that time. We, we split up. We, um, we'd been together for a few years, uh, this, this, this relationship. And I was then, again, asking myself this question, what do I want out of life? You know, what, where am I going? What Do I keep continuing what I'm doing now or do, is there something more that I want? And and the answer obviously was, yes, there is definitely something more that I want, but what is it and how do I get it and, and how do I do that? So uh, that's when I thought, okay, well, at the end of this particular contract, um, at the end of the year, I'm going to go travelling. Um, I'd, I'd wanted, I set off from Australia and I'd sort of left that life behind to start a new one. And part of that was, was about exploration. I really wanted to explore the world. Um, and I kind of hadn't. I've, again, found myself getting stuck, you know, need to make money, need to kind of succeed, whatever that is. And, you know, it was, I was always so sort of focused on just trying to sort of get the next job, you know, or shall I say more, I was focused on trying to succeed with the next film project more than get the next job. The, the corporate stuff was actually relatively easy for me after I got myself established. It wasn't something that was too hard, but, it, you know, it was the grind. It was just, I was, you know, living in a big city, the, the pressure to keep, you know, obviously make money and get ahead and do all that sort of stuff. And it was not, it didn't suit me. So I said, right, okay, I'm going to go traveling. And so uh, it was actually just in that lead up uh, to that, that I actually met my now wife uh, who was working at that company. 
And when I when I shared with her my plans, we started dating and shared with her my plans to go travel. She's like, oh, well, I'm actually going to go visit a friend of mine in South America. Um, I'd been thinking about going to Asia, but she said, you want to come to South America and, and hang out with us? We're going to Carnival in Brazil. I was like, yeah, cool. Sounds good. I hadn't thought about it, but yeah, why not? And I thought I've always wanted to go diving in the cenotes of the Yucatan Peninsula, right? These amazing sinkholes. I thought that'd be amazing to do. So great. So that's what I went. I went off and I sort of learned to scuba dive. And then I went and started doing these scuba diving trips in these cenotes, you know, having an adventure, traveling by myself for, for a little while before I met up with her. And uh, as it happens, on one of those scuba diving trips, I ran into some people from Australia, which were relatively few and far between in that part of the world at that time. And uh, through that meeting, discovered that there was uh, this property opportunity. They were selling these houses cheaply in Mexico, right opposite this protected turtle sanctuary beach, uh, sort of in the jungle. And um, I was backpacking. I wasn't interested. I wasn't shopping for property. But um, my ears pricked up when when the guy said um, that there was no planning restrictions. You can do whatever you want. And it was suddenly this creative sort of impulse of like, wow, wouldn't that be amazing to have this tiny little house, you know, very modest concrete block thing. But but in this amazing place surrounded by jungle, by the beach, you know, to, you could do whatever you wanted with. And suddenly I was kind of like, you know, my brain was kind of lit up from that. And I, anyway, I kept traveling through Central America and whatever, and then eventually met up with Charlotte. And um, on our adventure, on our travel in Belize and Brazil and stuff, we started saying, hey, you know, it's a pretty funny you know, thing, isn't it? Wouldn't it be crazy if we bought a house in Mexico? And I was like, do you want to do it? And bearing in mind at this point, we hadn't even moved in together yet. We'd only been dating for a few months. So. And to her credit, she was like, yeah, let's do it. And so I think that was, you know, so we did it, right? So we, we bought this thing. I was we, we were traveling. We went back to London. Both of us were working there. We worked for the rest of the year and then said, okay, at the end of this year, we're quitting our jobs and moving to Mexico. So we did. And, um, it, you know, it was this impulse to be open, I guess, to be proactive and to be open. You know, I think this is what the, the themes of, of what had been steering me at these key points uh, throughout my careers at, you know, at this stage so far. The, the openness to what's happening, open to opportunity, but also open to listening to what was speaking to me, what was my, you know, trying to discover what my truth was, what my sort of authentic inner voice, you know, who, who I was in this world, what, what did I really want to be doing? Um, so that, you know, that period then in Mexico, in around 2008, 2009, was, was a pivotal moment for, for me because apart from just having an amazing time, it really highlighted how important my connection to the natural world was. Because up until that point, um, you know, living in London and doing all this stuff, you know, I was young, I was full of energy and I was always striving and the big city and the bustle and all that kind of energy was great and I was feeding off it, but I also didn't realise that it was also draining me. So I was being sort of run ragged by it. And when I was there, I can still remember the moment, uh, you know, standing outside of, of my house looking at the wind you know, blowing through the, the the jungle, you know, through the trees and the sound of it. And I suddenly felt like this alive. Like I, I felt, wow, this this is actually what I like. This is what's important to me. This is what matters. Why do I live in this, this concrete brick jungle surrounded by sort of artificial things? The environment was not one where I was thriving. This is where I was thriving. And that realisation, I think, started, was the probably the the, 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 the first domino or the first thing which really then paved the way for what came later. I couldn't, after that moment, sort of deny what I, where I needed to be or what I needed to be doing. Although at that stage, I had no conception of what that would look like. Um, that still evolved, but I knew I needed to be doing something that was meaningful and I needed to, I needed to be connected with nature. And so, so that was the kind of the, I think, the, the, the pivotal moment for me. 
how did you get on to ecology? I mean, what made you then decide that this was the thing that you had to pursue? Because it was far away from your skill set at the time, first of all. I know that Mexico can probably trigger a few things as well, because there's a lot going on there. I mean, I think it's it's amazing that you found a jungle um, that's actually livable. <laughs> so tell us about how you how you made that pivot. Well, um, and that in itself, you know, again, life is not that neat. Um, it was a series of things and a series of forces that were kind of joining together. It was a confluence, really, of, of, of different streams of, of my own development, um, my evolution, uh, you know, all these things kind of coming together. Um, but what that, how that happened was essentially I, on the way back from seeing that house in Mexico, I was talking to one of the guys that had, that had linked me up with it. He was an architect. And growing up in Australia, I, I grew up in, in a mud brick house or adobe, some people call it adobe, um, in, surrounded by trees. That was just the world to me. That was just normal. So I never really thought that much of it. At, at this point, um, you know, afterwards, after we got the house, of course, it started to become clear that that had always been important to me. I just sort of forgot it. I'd just taken it for granted. And this connection to place to, 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 you know, I was an only child. I'd spent all my time climbing trees and playing outside and, and being surrounded by earth buildings and all this sort of stuff. So I just had that automatically and then moved away from it and thought I knew better and had other things I wanted to do. But then I remember chatting to this architect and, and talking about how earth buildings and, and all this kind of stuff, because my sort of daydream as an adult had always been one day I'm going to build my own house, you know, and maybe it'll be my brick, maybe it'll be something else. But, you know, and I'd always sort of daydream about how would I do that? What would that look like? You know, how can I curate and create my own living environment to be, you know, this wonderful paradise, you know, that suits me? And so actually it was through that. So after Mexico, I then started to think again about this, about, right, well, well, it's always been my dream to build my own house one day. But then how would I... The dream started to expand. So I started asking, how would I get water? How would I harvest water? You know, if I wanted to be sort of more self-sufficient, how would I um, do that? You know, do I have solar panels? Or how would I power it? You know, how would I feed myself? You know, and, and all this kind of stuff, right? So the, the sort of the daydream started to expand and I started to have questions and being intellectually curious, I wanted to know the answers to them. Um, so that was one sort of stream, a pre-existing sort of um, enthusiasm for that topic. The other thing was having sort of rekindled my love and connection to the natural world. I wanted to understand it better. I'd never studied science. I'd always been, I suppose, a bit of a, an armchair environmentalist, in, you know, and it was something that I've, I felt strongly about from a values perspective, but I, which is, you know, fine, but I didn't really know that much about at that time the issues. I remember. I had worked uh, for an energy company in London around the time that Al Gore released An Inconvenient Truth. And we'd organised screenings for the entire, you know, employee base of this energy company. And, and so this was, you know, a topic which was on my mind in this period too. Um, and along with a lot of other people, a kind of a, a growing realisation that, you know, that climate change and, and the issues of the environment were, were serious and urgent. Um, but hilariously, I remember thinking to myself once, sitting in an airport in Hong Kong thinking, okay, well, maybe my skills are in film, so maybe my contribution should be to make a film. That seems like the obvious thing to do, right? Um, but then I thought, oh, well, but Al Gore's made an inconvenient truth. We've kind of fixed that. <laughs> like, I remember thinking to myself, oh, that's covered now. We won't, no one needs another film about the environment, right? 
<laughs> Classic. Um, so, so I thought, well, actually, maybe I, I would, um, you know, I thought, what's, what's another sort of issue that maybe I could pour this energy into? Because at the time, I kind of also thought, oh, maybe it's about issues. Maybe if I could just get myself behind something that I cared about, that would be the thing which, um, and so I thought the global war on drugs. And so I actually did end up spending uh, quite a lot of time working on that issue um, for a bit. But, um, but it wasn't until a couple, you know, well, it's kind of, it was over the period of a year or so after this, so of Mexico and this whole sort of process, I, I realised that I needed this connection with the natural world. So, so through that and through this, through sort of, I guess, under the sort of premise of, or, well, let, I want to understand self-sufficiency more and how all these things work, I discovered permaculture. Um, and I discovered it through, I remember I was sitting in my office, uh, and I'm actually, it turns out to be the last uh, corporate job I ever did, I, I was a bit bored. I sort of I was on top of everything. And I, I remember finding this video on YouTube about this guy who um, had taken 10 acres of salty dust, right? There was no soil left in the Dead Sea Valley in Jordan, hyper-arid. And within three years, turned it into a green oasis. And I, that was my light bulb moment. When I saw that, I was blown away. I was like, holy heck, that, if that is possible, then we, we can fix anything like that. That is as hard as it gets. If you can turn a hyper arid, completely degraded environment like that back into something that's productive and green and life-giving, well, then we don't need any new technology. We don't need any new knowledge, you know, but we, that's, we've got everything we need. We just need to do it. And so I said, well, I want to learn how to do that. Um, I, I, I want to do that. That's the kind of thing that I want to do, right? That was something that, that, felt meaningful and that I just I knew nothing about it but I wanted to know how to do it so um, long story short I, I did I, I said I found that guy <laughs> I learned from him and I started trained with him and and that kind of was in permaculture design and then I you know for there was a period where I was like oh maybe I'll do a bit of film and permaculture design on the side you know still kind of clinging on to this old uh, you know almost a habit at this point I'm not sure if it was still a dream um, but the skeleton of this old career that I thought maybe, you know, my bloody mindedness, I suppose, is what it was, just refusing to admit that I could, you know, need to let it go. Um, and, yeah, but then that quickly, you know, sort of snowboard permaculture design was my, my, my thing. And then that kind of led me to ask questions, you know, uh, more questions. So I started, you know, putting things in, into place, planting trees and actually doing it with my hands. And it was, you know, doing that that made me think, well, hang on a second. So, like, why, you know, why would the, the bacteria for this nitrogen-fixing tree that I've been told about, you know, why would that be here? And then having to go and try and find answers when they realising there weren't obvious answers and then having to... Um, I started emailing scientists from around the world to ask these sort of technical questions about sort of, you know, biological, uh, sort of microbial symbiosis with trees and things like that and not how nitrogen-fixing works. And, and um, my now wife uh, was like, you're doing all this, well, you should just go back to uni and get a degree. I'm like, oh, it seemed really hard, you know. And it's like we'd, we'd actually, at this point, I think we'd actually had our first child, yeah. Um, and we had a baby and I was like, oh, you know. But um, she's like, you're doing all the you're like you're doing all the research anyway. You may as well just, you know, get a bit of paper for it, right? So anyway, um, long story short, yeah, I mean, uh, this this process, I mean, I'm trained with other people in, in agroforestry and soil ecology and, and microbiology. Uh, I went back to uni and got a degree in ecology. And yeah, you know, this, that sort of, it was that, that was kind of the process, I suppose, um, driven by uh, intellectual curiosity and, and, uh, and the fact that I was energized by it. And I use that, that, that word specifically because 
I remember, um, you know, around the time that I just mentioned when I was starting to sort of really ask a lot of questions and try and find out, you know, just wanted to drink up all this information, all this knowledge about how do natural systems function? How do we create them? How do we design an ecosystem? You know, um, how do we repair the damage that's been done? It was around this time that that um, my wife introduced me to this idea. She's an organisational psychologist by um, by training and, and, and works in, in that field and and had and been working in leadership development and all these other things, right? And so she came home one day and was talking about an exercise that she was involved with where people were asked to try and find one word that described what energised them. And it was a very simple, I guess, for like a sort of run-of-the-mill kind of, you know, workshop-facilitated type exercise to do. But for some reason... This captured my thinking in a way that nothing quite like it ever had. I'd spent a long time, in fact, I'd spent the whole of my adult life up to this point thinking about what I was passionate about, which was films and telling stories and working with actors and you know, crafting all these things. I was passionate about that. I was passionate about, you know, other things. I was, I loved music. I, you know, I thought about what I loved. I thought about what I was passionate about. I thought about all these other things, but I never actually asked the question, what energizes me? What gives me energy instead of taking it away? And when she framed the question in that way, it kind of floored me for a bit because I, I suddenly realized that I could be passionate about something or love doing something that maybe wasn't giving me energy. It was only sucking it. And, and that was, I think, a really critical turning point in my thinking about everything. And it was the moment that I was able to start letting go of my old career and the ego that was attached with this idea of failure and success. Because I realised when I tried to work out what was that one word for me, that it was it was kind of two. It was, it's what, it's a, the two sides of one thing, which is the exploration and the discovery. Somewhere in there is, is the thing which really energizes me and I realized that in everything that I loved doing throughout my life they all had that ingredient in common so the thing that I loved about making films that I didn't love everything about it but the bits that I loved most were because of that the things that I love to do is my pastimes in my hobbies and my whatever I loved them because of that because it, it it had contained this ingredient of exploration and discovery you know this this new field that was emerging for me about um, agroecology and permaculture and, and all this I was enjoying because of the exploration and the discovery of it. And so that suddenly was this thread which connected everything together and it made it much easier for me to see what, what I needed to be doing with my life and how I could be sustainable in doing it, right, and how I could be doing something which gave me energy instead of just taking it away. That's really, really powerful. I think that's just changed things for me as well. So I hope everyone else is having the same sort of reflection. So before we go to open Q&A, I have one last question and then I'm gonna stop the recording and then allow everyone to ask their questions as well. But before we move on, can you share what, maybe it doesn't keep you up at night because you found things that energize you, but share what concerns you about where we are now on certain climate and sort of sustainability tipping points. Well, there's a lot to be concerned about. I, th I think what concerns me is, is what you mentioned, is the tipping points. You know, the planetary tipping points are what concern me. I guess I feel like I'm often thinking about or talking about these kinds of, you know, issues with people. Um, and, you know, in my own echo chamber, I hear lots of other people talking about this stuff. The big million-dollar, trillion-dollar question that we all face is will human societies be able to wake up, face reality and do something meaningful 
and proportionate about this challenge in time. And, you know, the question of will the human species survive the coming crisis? So I shouldn't say coming, we're already in it, it's already started. I, I, yeah, I think the species will survive. Will human societies and civilizations survive in a way that's recognizable to us today? Probably not. Yeah, if we, you know, if we if we can do something about this in time, then yeah, maybe we might be able to, you know, still preserve the best. In fact, maybe even make it better. Um, but what keeps me up at night is 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 is, is how how it's the nature of, of psychology and change. People are not very good at change. Um, you know, I in my corporate life um, did a fair bit of change comms and, and working with change management um, professionals and, and working in that space, communicating that. And, you know, what I learned from that and, of course, being married to psychologists and, and organisational change and understanding the nature of the change journey and change psychology, you know, we're pretty rubbish at it. And, you know, I think the world needs a good change manager and we, we don't have that sort of mentality about it in some parts of the you know we're still bickering about it we're still kind of arguing whether it's happening and and then other parts everyone's like in a frantic panic about it which is you know warranted but not particularly helpful um but and loads everyone's trying to come up with solutions all the time um but we kind of don't i, don't, I mean this is a whole other topic in itself but we you know just a whole bunch of sort of single solutions trying to play essentially play whack-a-mole with technology and try and say oh well, we can just fix it by doing this you know just electric cars or it's just this or it's just that you know completely misunderstands the nature of the, of the problem that we have of the crisis that we face so what keeps me up at night is essentially that we just simply won't be able to wake up and face reality fast enough i think that's really what what concerns me and and I have my my good days and my bad days my days where I feel hopeful that you know things are can change rapidly and that, that when we give nature we take the boot off the neck uh, it, nature can respond so fast and and just come back so quickly and it's inspiring uh, to see you know but you know we just we're not very good at it and we're, there's still so much greed and so much ego and power tied up in preserving the status quo that yeah i don't know you know it could well be that maybe we just it just takes a generational change and you know just enough people enough for the older generation to go away for things to change but the, the fact is is that the planet doesn't care about that and it just may not be quick enough so that's what keeps me up at night and and i hope that uh, that we can somehow find it in ourselves to to do what's needed Thank you so much. This has been really valuable. I'm going to pivot now to the open Q&As and I'm going to stop the recording, but thank you all for joining me and see you soon for those of you who are watching it on the replay. This episode was brought to you today by the Courageous Career Club. Have you picked up your own copy of Do What Matters, the Purpose Driven Career Transition Guidebook? To find out how you can get your copy, as well as resources that go alongside it, visit my website, www.catherineannbyam.com or engage with me on the socials. I'm looking forward to hearing from you.